Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing, Episode 315, Rod Duncan. And now, constructed on a Zeppelin by an apprentice mage and delivered by a rocket ship to a benevolent dragon, Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing. Welcome to Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing, your podcast for science fiction and fantasy media. This is Brent Bowen giving Christy the week off, and I'm going to keep my comments brief, but you're going to get a whole lot of Christy actually coming up in the interview. So if you've been looking for your Christy fix, you're going to be getting it. You'll also be getting a fix of Rod Duncan. Today we are joined by author Rod Duncan. He has written Crime as well as fantasy novels, and both find their way in the current alternate history series, The Fall of the Gaslit Empire by Angry Robot Books. And I know Rod and Christy talk about the debut, which is The Bullet Catcher's Daughter, and then the follow-up, which was recently released maybe two months ago, called Unseemly Science. And Rod mixes in his crime background into these alt histories. Very fascinating books. If you're uh, Christy and I, a couple episodes ago, I think spoke about the Night Circus. And I know the debut, The Bullet Catcher's Daughter, has kind of a carnival backdrop. So if you are interested in that type of novel, then I think the interview with Rod will appeal to you. One of the things that's interesting about Rod is that he was actually identified with dyslexia at the age of eight. And it wasn't until the age, you know, it wasn't until word processing came around that he was actually started to engage with literature or even be interested in reading and writing. So that's gotten me thinking quite a bit. I've been watching a lot of news stories around Barnes and Noble and their falling profits. Not every Friday, but many Fridays on my way home from my day job, I'll drive a different way home to kind of reset my brain. And one of my favorite paths is to drive by an independent bookstore that I absolutely adored Mysteryscape. And after three years in business, they've shuttered their doors. So I'm sitting here watching the demise of kind of the traditional bookstore, although I think the trend line on the indie bookstores hopefully is still up. I need to go research that. But I'm also watching some other things take place in literature. If you've been on online and social media, there seems to be renewed energy and a reemergence around serial fiction. And so this whole idea of, you know, literature, reading, writing, and the evolution of how we convey stories very interesting to me. And I think something that we're going to be exploring over the next couple months. And I think Rod's a perfect example of that. He's an embodiment of that where the evolution of technology allowed him to really engage in in reading and writing. So I hope you enjoyed the interview. Like I said, I was going to keep my comments brief, but I'm going to, Christy and I are going to explore this evolution of storytelling. I know because it's something near and dear to my heart, but until next time. Everybody take care. This episode is brought to you by the second star series from Josh Hayes. In book two, The Forgotten Prince, fighter pilot Lieutenant John McNeil narrowly escaped the powerful and deadly regency and is desperately trying to come to grips with the truth about Neverland. His new friendships are formed and new enemies are made as John struggles to find his place in this strange new world. They have a plan to win back their home and save their world, but there is one thing they haven't counted on. Rumors of a new arrival bring the Lord of Neverland back to the city and he will stop at nothing to see that his power is unchallenged. His mission is simple. Find the intruder from the other side erase all memory of his existence, and crush the resistance for good. The time for bedtime stories is over. The final battle for Neverland has begun. Book one in the series, Breaking Through, is currently free on Kindle and iBooks and available on Open Books.
To learn more, come to the show notes, episode 315, and click on the image that you will see, The Forgotten Prince by Josh Hayes. Welcome to Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing. This is Christy, and today our guest is someone I wanted to interview since NorwestCon a few months back. Rod Duncan is the author of the Gaslit Empire series with Angry Robots. The first book, The Bullet Catcher's Daughter, was a 2014 Philip K. Dick Award nominee. And the second book in the series, Unseemly Science, which came out earlier this year, has met with incredible critical acclaim. The Gaslit Empire has been a real standout this last year for refusing to fall under any single genre category. It's a bit steampunk, fantasy, sci-fi, alternate history, and mystery all rolled into one. Rod, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the show. Please tell us a bit more about yourself, what you write, and what it's like to have your very first foray into genre fiction recognized for uh, a Philip K. Dick Award. Hi there. It's good to talk to you again. Um, I enjoyed meeting you at NorwestCon. That was a fabulous, fabulous um, festival, wasn't it? It really was, yeah. And um, yeah, okay. So that's a a whole bundle of questions that (laughs) rolled at me. So um, as uh, I I would say, of course, that um, the uh, crime writers would regard themselves as writers of genre fiction as well. So my previous novels in uh, contemporary crime, they, you know, they're not uh, sci-fi fantasy, but they still thought of as, as genre novels. Um, so yeah, that's, it's an interesting question. So, f- okay. Th- first of all, what the, um, the world is an alternate history. So it's, it's very much in that, uh, sci-fi fantasy, um, sort of orbit, I suppose. And it, um, the world is, it's sort of branched off from the history that we know and love or don't love, <laughs> um, a couple of hundred years ago. And it, um, there was something that triggered a revolutionary war in Britain, in the British Isles. And that caused the country to be split into a, a republic to the north and a kingdom to the south. And this is the, had all kinds of knock-on effects in geopolitics, which has caused the world to run a very different course to the one that we're familiar with. So although we've reached more or less the present day, things still feel very much like the 100 years ago or so, the age of steam in Britain, that's a a sort of Victorian-esque feel to it. So that's why I think people have talked about steampunk with respect to these novels. I was going to say, it it does fall into that aesthetic. Um, It's it's kind of got that... It's it's kind of funny how steampunk is branched off, where you've got the very strict Victorian steampunk writers, but then you've got this more nebulous aesthetic, which... um, you know, and, and the Gaslit Empire kind of falls into into both. Yeah, I saw someone recently uh, describe it as a sort of gas lamp fiction, and, uh, and and sort of not being, you know, not not perfectly in the center of of the the, the cluster that people would call steampunk. I don't know. I, I think these labels are really useful to us in order to help readers find the kind of books they're going to enjoy. But I don't think, well, I, I actually think it's quite important that we don't feel ourselves um, boxed in by, by these labels, that they're, they're very useful, they're great tools, they're very important in marketing, but, but they shouldn't, I think, um, really push your creativity in a direction that, that you don't want to go, you know, you don't, shouldn't feel, uh-oh, I can't do this because I'm writing a steampunk book or a you know, uh, a space opera or, or whatever. I think um, some of the great joy of of fiction is where you find uh, surprising turns with 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 perhaps worlds that might have seemed familiar, but then they they turn out not to be. So yeah, I suppose through my crime writing background, there's inevitably that crime fiction, private eye fiction coming in there because the protagonist works as a well, effectively a private investigator it would be called a private intelligence gatherer in in her world and yes it's got the steampunk elements and yes it's alternate history and uh, hopefully i suppose what 
all of us go for as writers is we're trying to produce a, a great yarn. You know, we're trying to produce a, a good page-turning story that, that readers are going to be carried along by. And that's, that's got to be the, the aim beyond any genre labels, I think. It's kind of interesting how, uh, you know, between between different types of writers and different types of genre writers, it's funny how different groups will um, will label themselves. Because uh, if, if a lot of the science fiction, fantasy, horror writers don't necessarily consider crime or mystery novels as genre fiction, but no, you're right, they absolutely are. They, they all kind of fall into that, that large tent. If you were to put um, a label for readers onto your books, would you label them as steampunk, alternate history, or do you like sort of the idea of leaving it a bit more, a bit more open to interpretation? The most reliable thing to call it is alternate history. And uh, I don't think anyone could argue with that. And so I, I, th- I think it's f- absolutely fair to say it is, has a strong steampunk influence in it. I think these genres really are more like centers of gravity that exert their influence on different creative things that people are doing, whether that be you know, fashion or whether that be um, fiction or film or whatever. I think it orbits around that center of gravity, certainly, and you can see the influence. Any crime reader, I think, will, know, will understand and recognize the, the, the way that it is playing with crime tropes as well. So I think there is similarly a, um, you know, that center of gravity, the, the private investigator is, is exerting its influence on this similarly, yes. You mentioned um, so we, we've sort of been talking about the um, the historical reference in in both the books and and in the series. How much research went into creating the world, um, and how concerned were you about the accuracy, considering it's alternate history? Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And and this is, I think, when I started uh, getting novels published, this was the question that people asked that I was surprised about because at the time when I my first contemporary crime novels came out and people said to me oh how did you do all your research I was a little bit thrown by it at first because I wasn't really aware of doing any research <laughs> and, uh, and I didn't quite know how to answer without admitting this terrible fact but it, actually I realized that what happens is I'm a very nosy person I'm a very inquisitive person and I just absorb all kinds of interesting stuff and uh, wherever I go, you know, if someone's digging up the road outside my house, I'm going to want to go and speak to that person and ask ask about this experience of digging up the how's this hole in the road compared to other holes in the road, you know, because this person, you can be darn sure, knows more about digging holes in the road than I will ever possibly be able to find out. So, however, I'm always asking people about things. I'm always trying to find out about people's lives. And I think when I started to write, it was just bringing together all this kind of stuff and finding a story that kind of joined up the various things that I'd, I'd learned all put together. And with the historical aspect, you're right, there is more actual specific research. But it's surprising, I think, how little, because it's just a whole area that I'm interested in anyway. And the city in which I live, this is uh, Leicester in the middle of England, and it substantially was built during that period of time, the late Victorian, early Ed, uh, Edwardian time. So we're talking about 1870 through to 1910, that kind of that kind of period. So wherever you go in this city, you're looking at buildings that were built at that time, and you know where the the road surface maybe is broken up a little bit you, and the asphalt's broken away, you can see the cobblestones just underneath, just, you know, an inch below the surface. There is this hundred-year-old street just waiting there to be seen. So I'm always kind of looking at this stuff and interested in this stuff. And I think that is primarily what drives that kind of researched aspect of the story is, is the stuff that I have found out. And there's amazing stuff there. You know, if you think, this is one that I I came across the other day, the year 1905, right? Mm -hmm. So over 100 years ago, and there were steam cars, like steam engine cars, chugging around the streets of England's cities. And that same year, Einstein published the theory of special relativity. 
And you think, wow, that is an extraordinary juxtaposition. I just can't, in my mind, put these things together. Doesn't feel like they belong, but yet they were. And so you think, well, okay, how can does that fit in? Surely that can be part of a story. There's some this this kind of stuff. As soon as you're playing with history, and you can make little tweaks in history and change things, you can start to get some very interesting little juxtapositions and play with the things we already have. So I think it's a playfulness and a curiosity. But it is surprising if you you. When I've read out a chapter to an audience and people have commented, wow, that, all the research you've put into that, when you really sort of ask them, well, what do you mean? What bits do you think were researched? It c- often comes down to a few little key words that you've dropped in that, that their minds have filled in all this kind of complex world. And you've just, you just put a few little hints in there. They've filled it in. So they think there is more kind of research gone into it than, than perhaps actually there is there you know it's the the sort of methodology that you're you're talking about it's it really reminds me back to um uh back to my research days uh when i was at um when i was doing science um cell biology and genetics research at um simon fraser university and one of our instructors we used to have to give presentations of research other people's research our research as part of um, our course load And one of the lessons he went out of his way to teach us was that when you're presenting a scientific concept or you're presenting research, only put on the page what you know you can really understand and really explain incredibly well. Because the less you put up there that you can explain really well, the better picture you're actually going to paint than if you try and put up every single detail you can find. It almost feels like a very similar kind of, of concept that you're you're talking about, where you're adding in very um, very organic details to the world that are necessary, but ring incredibly true to your to your readers. Yeah, and I th- I think this is the part of the, the way the human mind works when when we read off you know read fiction, or indeed when you listen to audio fiction. If you listen to a story on the radio that's dramatized, we get all these in- intense impressions of what that world is like which we've really extrapolated from the few bits of information we've been given i do an activity sometimes with students where i get them to kind of picture i do a bit of a guided visualization walk through the woods and you come to a house and i describe a few aspects of this house and the the peeling paintwork on the door frame and the window frames and the slates missing things like this and then i afterwards ask them okay how many of you saw this vividly and a proportion will put their hand up Mm -hmm. and so how out of those people uh and you pictured it vividly what color was the peeling paint and everyone everyone of course has different answers for that but they all saw it vividly one person will see it as cream with maybe a blue undercoat showing through another one will see it as green or blue and that is the marvelous thing about this process. It's a magical process, but the relationship between writer and reader mediated through these marks on the page that the writer may have one impression. They put down a certain amount of detail and the reader will fill in everything else and each reader will come away with a different vision in their minds of, of, of what they've seen. And I think that's just so exciting. I want to come back to your to your um, your experience as a as a writing instructor in a minute, but before before I forget because it's on my mind, um, two th- just two two other things I you know um, just listening to you that I've I've really sort of I'm curious about is you went from writing um, so and and I believe the series your first series was um, crime series was backlash breakbeat and burnout with That's Simon and with Simon and Schuster Simon and Schuster yes and. Um, what between that what what appealed to you about all, doing an alternate history book what led you to write um the bullet catcher's daughter uh, that's, uh another really good question <laughs> i think i'm gonna gonna rewind just a moment um to what we were talking about earlier about genre yep and and particularly it occurs to me that um i i hold by what all, all those things i said about um the genre being they shouldn't be boxes to hold us in as it were mm-hmm. they should they should be we should understand them as vehicles to um help reader and 
uh, writer find each other. But for writers setting out to write a work of fiction, particularly if you're going to invest in some big project, writing a novel, a, you know, a feature film screenplay or something like this, that even though we shouldn't be boxed in by it, it's really vital to understand the genres that we're, that we're influenced by. And um, so I just, I just wanted to mention that because it occurred to me that perhaps what I said might be taken as saying that ignore the genres. No, no, no. That's not, not what I mean. It's, mm -hmm. You've got to be aware of them. You've got to understand them. But they are there to help us, not to hinder us. I think that's, that's the point. Okay. And, um, and, and that, obviously, you set out to write a story and you spend however long it is writing a novel and then you try to sell it. And at that point, suddenly this question becomes very, very important. I did take liberties with, uh, with the genres in this series. You know, I think one of the good things about the publisher who took them up, Angry Robot Books, is that Angry Robots seem to have a very good understanding of the way genres can mix and, and can influence each other. And they, I think they're quite brave with their, their choices of acquisitions in, t in those terms, uh, something I really, really admire about them. But not every publisher will necessarily take such an open view. So you've got to be aware of it. That's, all, that's the, the thing. With having experience writing crime fiction and with writing um, alternate history, what are some of the similarities versus differences you ran into? Every genre has its various tropes. And those are, you, you, I think this is one of the reasons you have to be really aware of your genre and read in, in the genre or the genres that you're you know, that you're writing for, because there is this there's a whole landscape that's developed that people have gone over many times before you've been there. So let's suppose if you have a, a crime novel, and if you imagine this scene, we have a private investigator going to meet someone, a prearranged meeting. The uh, you know they go along to the person's apartment. It's night time. They knock on the door. No answer. They try the door. It's oh, it's unlocked. You're probably ahead of me here. <laughs> <laughs> Because you're well aware of the trope. So, they, of course, they've got to go in, right? And they've got to trip over the body of the person they're going to meet uh, that's going to be lying there on the floor. So that is uh, a kind of well-worn trope of, of crime fiction. So you've got to be aware of that. Maybe you're going to follow it, but probably you're not. Probably you're going to avoid it. You might give a little nod to it. I sometimes think that you can play around with these... Uh, with these tropes, use your knowledge of the audience's knowledge and subvert these tropes sometimes. But you've got to understand them. Mm -hmm. And I think they, they exist, and they're, they're just numerous, and they exist within crime and science fiction just as much as each other. And I think, though, particularly with, with crime, you have this choreography almost of discovery it's a mystery to be discovered you have to there are people to talk to there are problems to be solved and there are there are a whole range of kind of techniques that are used to do that to get your reader closer and closer to the answer and keep on distracting them from seeing it until you get almost there that's one set of techniques and, and skills with science fiction fantasy it's very much, um, I, I think, the distinctive set of skills here are to do with world building and the revelation of unfamiliar worlds. I, I thought, having written contemporary crime, I'd just be able to switch over because I read both crime and science fiction and fantasy. Uh, so I thought, oh, no, that shouldn't be any, any great difficulty. I can do it. How wrong I was. I had to learn so much. Just reading the books hadn't been enough to really teach me about how to reveal an unfamiliar world. So actually, the first novel, uh, The Bullet Catcher's Daughter, I wrote it in a reasonably short period of time, but then I, I rewrote it and rewrote it again and ended up taking quite a long time over it because I was just wrestling with this question, how to, how to convey this world, and particularly through a first-person narrator, because a first-person narrator isn't going to tell us about the odd qualities of the world because for her those qualities are normal and so it doesn't it won't it would uh, not sound right if she started to tell you details that were commonplace to her so yeah th that was a whole great skill set i had to learn but these two areas crime fiction and uh, science fiction uh, particularly in fantasy 
were the stories that I grew up on um, from young childhood. And I'm dyslexic, so I didn't learn to read until really quite late. And so my, my father used to read to me. And these were the things he loved to read. So he, uh, he used to read science fiction stories and, and the like to me. And that's, that's why, obviously, I've, I've ended up um, moving in this direction. You know, you, you mentioned as well, and you, you've alluded to it, that you're a writing instructor as well. T- tell us a bit about that, if, if you don't mind. And also, how did that factor into writing, if it did? Uh, you know, I think there are a couple of different paths you can take to uh, getting to to this kind of work and this kind of um, role of teaching creative writing and, and being a, a active writer. And one of those routes is through, you know, you, you study maybe English literature and you study creative writing. Perhaps you go do these things at university or you, you, you know, do a higher degree and people come through this path and I see people come through this path and it really works for some people and that's excellent. That's not the path I took. I came to this <laughs> through um, not having studied English, uh, you know, since I was uh, probably about 15. I, I took, you know, I just scraped through my English exams at that age and uh, and then as quickly as I could gave it up because writing and reading were a real problem to me not creating stories i constantly created stories in my head and told myself stories but i just couldn't write them down just the the dyslexia was too much of a a barrier and so later on you know in adult life i'd gone the science route you're a scientist i also studied the sciences and worked in science and computing but there came a point where i just realized the creative urge was too much i had to do something i had to write and the word processor had come along by that stage, which had kind of removed part of the barrier of just getting the stories out of my head and onto the page. Mm-hmm. And so I, and I started writing, and I wrote a, a novel which I, I sincerely believed was wonderful, which of course wasn't at all. I, I, <laughs> you know, it's just complete rubbish. But, um, but I loved doing it. I absolutely adored the process. And having failed to get it published for the very good reason that it wasn't good enough, I uh, I thought, well, no, I, you know, I'm going to try a- another one. And I wrote a series of novels that didn't get published. Well, not uh, separate novels; they weren't a series as such. But but I surrounded myself with people who were also writers, many of them successful writers, and I got feedback from them, and I. I learned from my mistakes and eventually I got to the stage where my writing was good enough and I, I got published by Simon & Schuster, as, as you said. So that's a completely different route. So having done that, having gone that route, I then found, as I think writers quite often do, people started inviting me to go and give workshops and, and to teach writing classes. And and so latterly, I, I came to, to start doing this. And I also found I loved that and i I think um you know if you get a a writer probably this is you you're just naturally a writer you could do it all right from the start some (laughs) people like this and they just have this great ability but i didn't (laughs) and i had to learn all these different things as i went along all these different stages and i think in some ways that might make me a little bit of a better teacher than i would otherwise have been because i i can see these my students at different stages and i i and i recognized all the all the stuff i had to learn i had to uh, kind of um, starting from a very low starting point as I did, all the things I had to pick up and I, I can spot those in the students' work as they're developing. And so I, I think I'm, I'm able to enjoy that process of, of facilitating other writers' development because of the path that I, I took particularly. So yeah, now I'm working, I work in different places uh, and teach writing, creative writing at different places, but I'm particularly working at De Montfort University in Leicester now. And I just love it. I think it's a great privilege to be able to share that journey with people and witness the discoveries that they're making as they're making them. I do find that when, at times when I'm doing a lot of teaching, that it sometimes inhibits my own writing. And I think that's because it becomes a very conscious process. Uh, by helping other people, by talking to other people about the process of writing that kind of meta level awareness that you have to develop it can become a little if, if you're too much involved with it too much immersed in it it can 
make you too aware. It's like you're walking along the road and suddenly you, you think, oh, wait a minute, how am I walking? And suddenly you, you fall over as soon as you do that, something that was natural. So there's a kind of balance. I, I like to keep a, a, a balance between how much I teach it and how much I actually do it. It always surprises me how many writers, especially in, in sci-fi fantasy, end up coming from a science background initially. Yeah. So what is one of the most, for our listeners out there, a lot of our listeners are aspiring, um, aspiring writers. What is the single most common, or what do you feel is one of the most common writing mistakes or things that people maybe is a blind spot they have um, that you notice in, in uh, when you're teaching? I think there is this wonderful diversity of the human mind. I mean, I say I'm dyslexic, that's just one label, but it's just a reflection of the fact that there is this huge diversity, neurodiversity out there. It seems to me from talking to a lot of writers that every person comes with a certain kind of set of cards to start with, certain set of strengths that they've got. Probably for me, the thing that I had right at the start, even though everything else was very terrible, was that I could imagine myself into a scene. When I was actually writing it, it felt to me as if I was in it, as if I was standing there. So that came naturally to me. Some other people don't have that come naturally to them. Some other people are just natural plotters. They understand plot structure so well, they don't even have to think about it. There are no post-it notes or anything. I have one, one ex-student who told me he would create his stories whilst he was going about his everyday life, whilst he was in the shower, whilst he was out walking, whatever he was doing, he would be creating his stories. He didn't need to write them down. He could remember the whole thing. And then when he eventually he came to write it down, it was all there prepared. That's so unlike me. <laughs> That's the op And I've, uh, another ex-student who says, and both these are published, actually, both these managed to get uh, publishing contracts. Another ex-student, she says that she sits down to write and when she finishes she can't remember anything she's just written she's just been almost like in a trance state while she's writing and so this re represents this massive diversity of people and i think to try to pick out one failure one issue that is the most common is is that's not my experience i think there are there is this great diversity of them out there and that reflects the diversity and wonderful that it is too of, of the human race. It almost seems like it's it's more important to figure out what you're good at or where your strengths and weaknesses lie than what a single mistake necessarily might be. Yeah, I, I think that, for example, if I have a writing class, if I have um, a new group of people coming to me outside the university, this would be, so this might be a, a, an evening class in, in creative writing, I would typically expect that about 15% of the people coming would have an ear for dialogue right from the get-go. They can reproduce lifelike dialogue. They may not have all the, the techniques to structure it on the page and everything like that, but they know those little ticks of, of speech and they can reproduce them. Everyone else has to learn it, <laughs> but those people have it right from the get-go. As I say, I, I started out with this ability to immerse myself in the scene. That one's actually very difficult to teach people to do it, but it is a great gift because it gives you the ability to handle point of view very, very precisely, very, um, and that, that gives a power to writing immediately. And other people, as I say, they have maybe a, a deep understanding of character, and they will be able to get that absolute emotional truth into their characters without trying. So actually, if you ask 100 novelists, how do you write a novel? You'll obviously get 100 different answers, but each time the novelist will tend to be answering you by telling you about the thing that they are not so good at. Mm -hmm. So the person who's not very good at plot, you say, how do you write a novel? They'll say, oh, I get these post-it notes and I put them all over my wall and I, I move scenes around and I, you know, I, I do this. The reason they know that is because they had to learn it. Whereas the person who's naturally good at plot is completely unaware of how they're doing it. They just do it and it just happens. And uh, similarly for all these other, other strengths and qualities, that we, are, we tend to be aware of the thing we've had to consciously overcome, consciously learn. And if you say, say to us, how do you write a novel? We tend to answer, oh, it's this. And that reflects the weakness. 
I, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, just you know, the the idea of of you know how does somebody write a book and that concept of they'll answer by the way that they you know by by one of their weaknesses. I think you're absolutely right. And and everybody really does have different strengths and weaknesses. So there there really is no one answer. Well, I'll tell you something. I the first novel I wrote, I told you about that terrible novel I read. I I, I wrote it and I I sent it off and actually a few publishers looked at the whole thing. And th- I got back this consistent answer that, uh, you know, we, we like some aspects of this, but we're not going to take it because the characters don't really develop and the dialogue isn't, isn't very lifelike. Mm-hmm. And, so, and so I thought to myself, okay, since I'm going to write another one, I'm going to concentrate on these things, character development and dialogue. So I did it. I wrote another novel with that in mind and I, I sent that off and I got this response back one of the early responses I got we love the characters and we think the dialogue is fabulous but we're not going to take it on because it lacks that page turning quality so you know I thought okay right I'm going to write another one now and it's going to have more page turning quality so this was my degree course and masters and everything in creative <laughs> writing it's just getting these rejections and getting these steers by different people told me how to you know the things i needed to develop and i think you can you know most of us we can we should have the capacity to if we focus if we are honest about the state of our writing and we listen to the feedback of people who who have a lot of experience then um and and address the things that they raise then we you know we can we can fill in these gaps that we have thankfully otherwise i would never have got anywhere (laughs) so many gaps (laughs) otherwise i don't think any writer would get anywhere because Uh nobody comes out writing writing perfect i think that's one of the joys of of creative writing because it's a road that has no end yeah you always know that there's more to do and that's wonderful getting back to the bullet catcher's daughter your main protagonist is uh, is Elizabeth Barnabas, and um, and she's a female. And I, I, I actually, I remember I asked you this question at NorwestCon as well. So, but why a female protagonist? There are different ways of answering that. One is just to say that she's the character who appeared on the page, and I thought, oh, that's interesting. She kind of just showed herself to me, and I was surprised, and ah, thought, wow, that's that is an interesting character. So I went with it, and that's one way of answering. But another way, which is perhaps gets a little bit under the skin of the story, is to say that it is a story about restriction. It's the the whole series is a is a, got this this theme there underlying the whole thing is the things that restrict us, be they social restrictions or be they legal restrictions, because in this world. Obviously, you, you kind of learn reasonably early on that, the, that there is a, a, an international agency that has been set up to stop the development of, <coughs> pardon me, of technologies that would be detrimental to the well-being of, of, of the common man, as they would say. And so this is the theme, this is the background that's, that's there behind the, the yarn of her going on her investigations and being a private investigator. And so in that society, which is as, not as socially progressive as even as far as we've got now, it is quite restricted and um, it is particularly restricted for women. And for that reason, it becomes a far more interesting story to follow the life of of a woman in that society and see how she is um how those those restrictions affect her because that that immediately gives you a lot of tension in the story and tension gives drama and drama gives drive to a story so um so i think that's probably a, a deeper answer to uh, <laughs> to why i have the the female pr- protagonist and um of course when I realized I was writing the story, uh, being a, a, a bloke, uh, writing a first-person story from the point of view of a woman. Actually, my first published crime novel was also first-person from a female, female point of view. But I think it was harder this time because the society is more restrictive and gender identity is more of a theme of the story. So it's like you're holding a magnifying glass over that aspect and asking, inviting your readers to come along and see, have I managed to do this okay? <laughs> and uh, kind of setting yourself up for, um, <laughs> for, for close investigation in that case. Happily, readers and reviewers have been kind enough to say that uh, I've not strayed too far from what they consider to be a, uh, a believable female point of view. 
There's a few of us at Adventures of Sci-Fi, um, myself and and another one of our, our female uh, female reviewers, and and we both that was something that uh, we both really enjoyed was was the female was the the female protagonist and and I you know I'm trying to think if if it ever occurred to me that it was. Um, it was it was a male author and a female protagonist. I think I I don't think I even thought about it until afterwards, and I was coming up with with um you know with some of these questions where I was like oh you know it's I, I guess it's an interesting it's an interesting challenge as an author. Yeah, and and it's it's a subject that often comes up, obviously, because I've chosen to write in this way with a character like this, and I think it kind of raises all kinds of questions because you think well, are we really saying because people will say is this a believable female character so are we really saying that all female characters should be a certain way and all male characters should be a different way are we saying that there's some intrin such an intrinsic difference in character um between men and women that um that anything we might write could be beyond the, the realm of possibility and and i think people who wouldn't dream of saying that about reality will still form a judgment about a, a character and it's it's a very interesting thing of course society imposes you know all kinds of restrictions on people based on their sex and their gender presentation and you know that obviously has a big influence on the way character develops but yeah i i, th I think it's a fascinating area and i'm the more i know about it the more i realize i don't know really it's an interesting analogy or, or a parallel situation, the, the concept of, you know, Elizabeth in, in the series and having to deal with Victorian, um, sort of Victorian restrictions on what women are, are allowed to do. But you do see some parallels, as you were mentioning, with the, the perception of women in, in modern, modern day, um, you know, internationally, you know, pick, pick a location in the world. But there, every place has different types of expectations on, on, um, on what's necessarily acceptable for women, so it, it's it's an interesting, almost removed parallel that you were able to you're able to explore. Yeah, and I think with uh, the backstory of Elizabeth, uh, she was raised as uh, on a in a travelling show, travelling conjuring show, and so she was involved in um, a, a stage illusion in which she had to pass herself off as her twin brother. So her father was uh, was a stage performer, stage stage magician. Mm -hmm. And so she, from an early age, has, you know, obviously developed the skill of moving and appearing uh, as a male in that society. And for her, these two roles seem equally artificial. Of course, this isn't, isn't not the case for everybody who, who presents it as a, a, a gender that conflicts with what people might regard as their natural sex. Mm -hmm. But but for, for Elizabeth, certainly, she feels that when she puts on the corset to change her body shape in one direction, that is artificial. And if she puts on a binding cloth to change her body shape in a different direction, that is equally artificial. Mm -hmm. So she's she's got this very clear understanding of these different roles and the different opportunities and the different restrictions that each one will place on her when she if she inhabits that role. In that way, she is very much an outsider within the society because she has an outsider's view of these different roles that are fundamental to the way everyone else goes about their lives. You you don't have to answer this question, um, and I'm going to put a quick little spoiler, you know, um, little spoiler tag up there for anybody listening. Um, you mentioned Elizabeth's brother, and. One of the, you know one of the interesting things that I noticed reading through um, reading through Unseemly Science is that by the end of the book it sort of you know uh, it, it occurred to me that even though I had made my own assumptions about her brother it's never actually revealed whether or not he, he is a real person and I wondered there, there's there's never there's never a moment where we're told that he doesn't exist and I was wondering if that was an intentional device from the start or something that evolved uh, or, or whether or not I was just reading between the lines and, and coming up with my own um, my own interpretation well I'm, I'm sitting here smiling <laughs> <laughs> um, it's been really interesting reading different re readers comments about um, I'm a terrible one for reading reviews. I, I read them all because I'm really interested to know. It's that curiosity again. I want to know how it's how the books have been received, and and I'm as as interested where people really don't like it as where people really do. And I've noticed that people, one or two people, have commented on this, and and 
you know, said, I still don't understand, still don't know if the brother's real or not. And it, I don't, I don't want to say too much ab- about this because obviously if I, uh, if I say, I can't tell you the answer to that, then that, that, that will actually tell you more than, <laughs> more than, more than if I, I didn't answer. So I don't want to go definitely one way or the other. I'm aware of this. And I was aware of this very early on that the reader will not know and there is a reason a a psychological reason that this comes about this way and it is intended and this is to do with the way that elizabeth regards these personas and and it's she isn't really even consciously aware of this but because to her the brother in a way is real and in a way isn't real Mm -hmm. that she everything that she says about this will come over in that ambiguous way and though i will say that if you read very closely (laughs) in in the books you will find that there is someone else who refers to the brother and you might might get clues if you look closely at what someone else says who doesn't have that kind of psychological setup that i've just described i'm gonna have to read through through them again (laughs) (laughs) um You've got the third book, The Custodian of Marvels, coming out in February, I believe, which is not too far away. You're panicking me. You're panicking. I'm panicking. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. As a writer, I'm, I'm here working uh, on The Custodian of Marvels, and um, it's going really well, I have to say. I'm very excited about it, but I'm also very conscious of the, my uh, tight deadline coming, do- coming deadlines. up very soon. I so, can sympathize. Uh, I can sympathize. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um but yeah i'm i'm really excited about it one of the great things about book three is that i'm able in this book to round up a number of the long-running threads that have been going through not all of them not all of them there um, i'm not saying you'll understand any more about the brother who may or may not exist <laughs> by the end of book three but there are other aspects such as the crucial question of what the event was that pushed this alternate history away from our own mm-hmm. by the end of book three you will have a much better understanding of that and that that is something that at the beginning of the series of books elizabeth doesn't know mm-hmm. but by the end of book three she's going to have a much she's going to have much more information much more understanding and of course an understanding of the fragility of the social and legal order under which she lives because the series title is the fall of the gaslit empire by the end of book three the gaslit empire will not have fallen but we maybe will see some some cracks i think in the edifice we're gonna get some yeah we're, we're gonna get a bit of a, a bit of a glimpse into the future maybe i guess the, the very last question i want to ask and i'm sure a number of our listeners are probably wondering by now what is a bullet catcher and the bullet catcher's handbook <laughs> the bullet catcher's handbook. Well, conjuring, stage magic is is the background to this world. Elizabeth's world, her father was a stage conjurer, the performer of a grand illusion. And in this world, the famous, well, really one of the famous uh, stage magic illusions is to catch a bullet from the air. Don't try this at home, folks. <laughs> a bullet from the air i just have to suddenly break out in a sweat thinking what people might might try no um so a gun is fired on one side of the stage the conjurer appears to grab their hand out and catch the bullet out of the air or alternately even more dramatically catch it in their teeth all right and if you look online you'll see i think that on youtube there are a few examples you can see of people performing this this illusion in different ways mm-hmm and it's uh, a, f- a very famous illusion because it's actually very dangerous and obviously dangerous because there are guns, loaded guns pointing around and things can go wrong. And in history, in our real history, things have gone wrong. Occasionally. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so in this alternate world where the world of stage illusion is very important, you know, they are still in this prolonged golden age of stage magic. We think of the golden age of stage magic, Harry Houdini early part of the 20th century, maybe the 19th century, early part of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. But in, in this alternate history, it's still here. We're still in that kind of time. Again, there are reasons, reasons for that. So the performers of Grand Illusions 
called in this world bullet catchers mm-hmm. because of after that very famous uh, very famous illusion and the bullet catchers handbook is again you'll learn a lot more about this in book three <laughs> about what the bullet catchers handbook is but it's it's a, a collection of advice and sayings and aphorisms and philosophy and worldview and technical detail that uh, have been collected probably as part of an oral history of these traveling conjurers and compiled into a, a kind of book that that they will carry around with them and every copy of the book is different although they all have certain central sayings they are added to as the years go by so there's almost like a genealogy of different copies of the bullet catchers handbook and every chapter in the first novel and half the chapters in the second novel begin with a quotation from the bullet catchers handbook so i'll give you one for example only two kinds of men can be conned those with vices and those without that would be <laughs> for the bullet catchers handbook no, I, I remember really enjoying those um, it, it, with, with all the different chapters. Um, the Bullet Catcher's Daughter and Unseemly Science are both available in ebook and physical book. Um, for, for listeners out there, it's a series I've highly enjoyed and been recommending. Uh, for listeners interested in finding out more about you, um, you, Rod, and the series, where can they find you? Um, they can come and find a little glimpse into the world of the Gaslit Empire if they come to gaslitempire.co.uk okay and we will definitely put a link in the um in the show notes for all of you out there so you can find uh find links to to rod there and can i also say i'm delighted that it's now available as uh audiobook through audible and the wonderful Gemma whelan is the narrator those of you who watch game of thrones will have seen her so i'm delighted with that oh that's fantastic that's fantastic. I might have to pick up. I might have to pick up the audiobook in order to uh, to, to listen to that if I'm going to listen to it again and try and get that clue on um, on the brother. Um, anything else we missed? You know, you spend all this time writing the book, and you just dream and hope that people out there in the world will be enjoying it and getting something out of it. So do dive in and you know enjoy it. Thank you so much for joining us today, Rod and. Um, Adventures in Sci-Fi, folks. I will talk to you guys. I'll see you guys later. Visit Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing for show notes, links, reviews, special guests, videos, and more. Email us at adventuresinsci-fi-publishing at gmail.com. Sound effects from the Free Sounds Project. Music by Asymmetry, found at musically.com. No authors were seriously damaged in the making of this podcast. <laughs>